Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, the weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with The China Project. Subscribe to Access from The China Project to get, well, access. Access to not only our great newsletter, The Daily Dispatch, but to all the original writing on our website at thechinaproject.com. We've got reported stories, essays, and editorials, great explainers, regular columns, and, of course, a growing library of podcasts. We cover everything from China's fraught foreign relations to its ingenious entrepreneurs, from the ongoing repression of Uyghurs and other Muslim peoples in China's Xinjiang region, to Beijing's ambitious plans to shift the Chinese economy onto a post-carbon footing. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. We cover China with neither fear nor favor. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you from Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Last month, in June, the Council on Foreign Relations, CFR, published a report called U.S.-Taiwan Relations in a New Era, Responding to a More Assertive China. The task force was chaired by Susan M. Gordon and Michael G. Mullen, and David Sachs was the project director. It brought together 26 participants, many of whom will be known to listeners of this podcast. As the task force was bipartisan, it included people whose views on Taiwan, on China, and on many other issues were quite far apart, shall we say. And so it is not at all surprising that there were a number of dissenting views on both the more hawkish and dovish sides, as it were. This week on Seneca, I've asked two of the task force participants, both of whom I've had on the show talking about Taiwan in recent years before, and both of whom penned dissents to the CFR report that were published along with that report. Maggie Lewis is professor of law at Seton Hall and has been on the program before to talk not just about the Taiwan elections of January 2020, uh, where she was, you know, she she was there along with Shelley Rigger and and uh, a lot of the the sort of smartest folks on Taiwan out there for that election. Uh, she was also on the show the following year to talk about the DOJ's China Initiative, no longer so named, but still doing its thing. Maggie has been at the forefront on that issue, doing the important work of pushing back against the ethnic profiling that has bedeviled that controversial program since its inception back in the Trump administration. Maggie joins us from Taipei. And uh, welcome back to Seneca. Great to see you. Always a pleasure to be here. And boy, is this presidential race getting interesting in Taiwan. Well, you know, you've already promised me that we're going to get you for a before and after uh, of that. So uh, you'll be hearing a lot from Maggie uh, come, come election time. 
All right. Our other guest today, joining us from the city of the Big Shoulders, Chicago, Illinois, is Paul here who listeners will know from his turns on the show. Paul was trained as an historian and has had a long career at the CIA, where he headed the China desk for many years, and from 2007 to 2015 was the National Intelligence Officer for East Asia in the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, ODNI. He is the author of Mr. X and the Pacific, George F. Kennan, and American Policy in East Asia, and bears, I have to say, in uncanny physical resemblance to the subject of that book. <laughs> uh, Paul is now at the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. Welcome back to Seneca. Great to see you. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be invited. Yeah. Mr. Kennan. No, no. <laughs> um, uh, so, you guys, just looking at the names of the participants, I think anyone with even a glancing familiarity with the kind of China policy field would know that there was certainly going to be a lot of disagreement within this group. What were the ground rules going in? How was this obvious issue intended to be resolved? They certainly didn't think you would all come to a set of of, of common denominators of, of, of points of agreement and that that would be you know, a wrap. Maggie? As you said, like this was a robust discussion over a long period of time. I appreciate that CFR brought together a range of views, and I think that shows just how much conversation and, and and real debate there is about the best path forward for U.S. policy toward Taiwan. Uh, and two, just to be clear, you know, CFR member-based organization, the CFR itself does not take a position. Um, this is an independent expert group that is putting together this report. Right. Um, I, I really found it useful. I, I mean, for me to, you know, I agree that, you know, when I'm in a room with Matt Pottinger, we're going to have differences but I'd much rather be in a room with people who are going to disagree with me in ways that push me to think about my views and, and to articulate them better. And I also appreciated that there was the space to have additional views slash dissents because ultimately this is a report that has got a strong military energy and that is, of course, key. Uh, but there's a lot more to this debate uh, than just the military aspects. Yeah, for sure. And that's something that I wanted to drill down on and, and talk to you about. Um, so I, I do want to get a little more about sort of the mechanics of how this thing worked. Maybe, Maggie, you could elaborate a little bit and talk about the actual process of producing the report. Were there So there were days of in-person meetings and then maybe drafts sent around? So David Sachs, as the project director, did the, the real heavy lifting. And, and behind him, too, there's the, the CFR uh, staff that works not just on this task force, but, but more generally on task force, who, who really were fantastic at hurting us cats, because it's not easy to have this many people involved. Yeah. It was a mix of in-person for some people, and then other of us you know, were, were remote in, in, in Zoom land. But it was a series of meetings that were punctuated then in between with sharing drafts and before it was a full draft, you know, sort of in progress points. And and certainly some things were kind of easier to do. The the history, which is, is not without its complications, but you know, that that part took less of our effort. You know, and then issues like what to do about uh, strategic ambiguity, of course, um, is going to take a lot more energy to to figure out are were we going to get to any sort of general coalescing on on a point that could be put into the report itself, or do we have to agree to disagree? Um, but it was over the course of of a number of months, and then to the point, then you finally get to uh, people like me who are lawyers who like you know digging in to figure out where there's commas that shouldn't be. But it was definitely an iterative process involving a lot of a lot of brains. Paul, 
what were some areas where you had, I mean, Maggie mentioned history, but where you had perfect or, or near perfect consensus? Were there some assumptions going into this that you could safely assert were, were shared by all of the participants or at least, you know, the overwhelming majority of the participants? Well, if I, I think if you look at the, at, the, at the key findings and recommendations, well, I'm actually more importantly, the key findings, uh, I think there was a consensus from the outset that the, the reason to confront this issue was that the formulation, the diplomatic formulation that had been ma- maintained stability across the Taiwan Strait for the last 40 years was faltering and was no longer serving its purposes over the longer term. So I think there was a common understanding and agreement that that challenge needed to be confronted. You asked about whether there was a, an expectation or a requirement that we'd reach an agreement and what the ground rules were. I mean, as Maggie said, it was an iterative process, but there was no requirement that we come to closure on, on the issues. Uh, the, the, the way that the, the task force, SCFR task force, is arranged is there'll be this, this iterative, deliberative process where we'll go through successive drafts and successive meetings to weigh through things. But then at the end of the process, the final draft will be presented, and we have the option of, and the way it was framed was that we have the option of concurring on the report or withdrawing from it if we fundamentally disagree with its thrust. I think those of us who wanted to sign additional or dissenting views did so because we largely agreed with the central thrust of the, you know, the imperative of confronting the issue. And I think there was, there was much less disagreement on some of the, the general security issues, some of the economic issues, for example. I mean, Maggie can speak for herself. I mean, you know, I, I saw the greatest divergences of views on some of the diplomatic and political issues. Sure, uh, sure, sure. But as I said, we were given the opportunity to record those. So there was no requirement that we reach full agreement on everything. Right. Are you at liberty to say whether there were any withdrawals? Not to my knowledge, actually. Okay. Not that I recall. Interesting. So there were some things that that were in the body of the report that that I it certainly resonated with me. And that, that one line that stuck out was, Beijing has not yet decided to pursue a non-peaceful resolution and deterrence remains possible. That that hopeful note that which is you know quite key in there, but much of the report does ring alarms and it, it talks about. I mean, from the very very outset of the in Richard Hass's introduction to it, he he talks about this twenty twenty seven date and it's referred to many times throughout the report. This date that's often attributed to Admiral Philip Davidson. Um, whether the readiness that Xi Jinping has supposedly set out as a goal for the PLA centennial actually means you know, not just be ready for it, but actually go for it, you know, going to do the thing. Uh, for our purposes today, how seriously did the CFR task force take this, this 2027 date? And, and, and was there debate over the significance of it, you know, whether it should be included in the report without the context, e.g. that, you know, well, it was, it's the centennial of the, the PLA, and it has more symbolic than, than maybe real import. On that issue, on that issue, I think that the task force kind of quickly uh, converged around what had by that time become the general consensus. I think there's been a lot of you know sturm und drang on this issue for the last two years, uh, but I think the general view, and I, and I think there was general agreement within the task force on this, is that the 2027 date is a time time frame for the acquisition of a capability. It does not reflect a decision to send the balloon up when that date arrives. I think there's no, well, I'm not reading classified information anymore on a regular basis, but I don't think there's any discernible evidence for that. And I think that uh, the general public discourse on that issue has, has has reached that kind of tentative conclusion. And I think that was 
not not you know strongly debated within the task force, but I, I think that we generally agreed on that point. Hmm. Maggie, as you as you mentioned, much of the report focuses on on the military calculus around Beijing's capabilities, stuff about which I will readily cop to abject ignorance. But but Maggie, you worry as I do that ceding the ground of expertise on military matters kind of allows those people who do have knowledge to have maybe disproportionate weight or to give disproportionate weight to the military component of the relationship at the expense of diplomatic and political and, and economic considerations. Um, it's one of the things that you expressed discomfort with in your dissent, uh, this dominant military thrust of the report, as you described it. Um, this echoes what I've often heard from people like you know Ryan Haas, his co-authors on this new book, uh, U.S.-Taiwan Relations, Bonnie Glaser and, and uh, Richard Bush. Ryan, as well as Paul and, and others as well, have, have often described the, the Taiwan issue as a political issue with a military dimension, right? But Maggie, your, your concern seems to be that, that it's presented in this report as too military forward. I think there's a couple of things going on here that, so first this, you know, exactly that we need to have, yes, a credible military deterrent, but we also need credible reassurance. And, and one of the recommendations of the task force is that the United States maintain its one China policy, recognizing the PRC as the sole legal government of China. Um, and saying that, we go into the history and make clear that the U.S. has not taken a position on the sovereignty of Taiwan. And, you know, thank goodness, uh, many years ago, that the U.S. government only acknowledged the PRC's position of the one China principle that it has Taiwan as part of China. The U.S. never recognized endorsed or anything like that. So, you know, we do have in this report that political aspect. But, you know, my my view was that that didn't get enough attention in the report, particularly with respect to to what extent there should be assurances that the one China policy on the U.S. has not shifted. And in particular, with Biden's uh, multiple remarks uh, that seem to be setting a new baseline and even making some connections to treatment of Taiwan as similar to treaty allies uh, like Japan. So it's there, but it, it, it needed some oomph in my view. Uh, the other aspect that, you know, I, as someone who you know, spent a lot of time in Taiwan, lived here three of the past six years, and perhaps because of my my human rights framing, uh, just wanted to make sure, too, that there was enough Taiwan in this report. You know, it is D.C.-centric right. with good reason, because we're, you know, people writing for a U.S. audience. This was not written by people who identify as Taiwanese, our ROC passport holders. But I think it was important to, you know, recognize as, as we do that the the people who would be most devastated by any military conflict are the people who live here in Taiwan. Um, and also, though, making clear that Taiwan needs to do more to address its shortfalls with respect to defense and civil resilience. So that was something which I think is in there. But I I, I certainly want to make sure gets enough attention as well. So on that point, on the the lack of sort of Taiwan centricity to this. Was there, to your knowledge, any effort to to rope in more people with specific Taiwan expertise into this? Because, you know, again and again in these things, uh, Taiwan ends up being this sort of bone of contention, and it, it ends up being entirely framed as this sort of great power, you know, U.S. and China thing. 
and Taiwan falls out of the conversation. Uh, and we, we all recognize this as a problem, I hope, but it keeps on happening. You are obviously somebody who, who qualifies, but I didn't see a lot of other names who immediately jumped out as, at me as people who are really invested in intellectually and, and maybe professionally in Taiwan itself. I, I do not know the process that they went through to put together the task force. And, you know, and I'll be first to say that, you know, although I have spent a lot of time in Taiwan, you know, I, I do not identify as Taiwanese. I'm a U.S. passport holder. And so no, I never want to make it sound like, you know, I've got this right. But um, and again, it was supposed to be about U.S. policy toward Taiwan. Um, but I, I think, though, at the same time, you know, just you know, sort of recognizing our our limits about what we could do and not do in this report. But um, I, I will say, though, I felt very listened to, and I appreciate that, that you know, we had some people in the task force who had tremendous um, knowledge of geopolitics, international relations, U.S. politics, but, but quite limited Taiwan experience. And I appreciated that they were very interested in hearing from those of us who had spent more time on the ground here. Yeah, on the Taiwan perspective, I would, I would make two points. Uh, one, Doug Paul was a member uh, of the task force. And as a former AIT director, uh, he has a depth and breadth of expertise on the Taiwan issue. The second thing, which is mentioned, and I think in the forward to the report, is that uh, a subset of the membership of the task force, David Sachs and Sue Gordon, and I think Admiral Harris, uh, went to Taiwan on a fact-finding trip uh, early this year, uh, directly as a product of this task force to conduct a wide range of meetings uh, inside and outside the government there. So that was another contribution to the Taiwan perspective. Okay. This is a little out of order from what I originally planned, but I think let's move to this question that Maggie's already introduced about the the fate of strategic ambiguity, because the report is ostensibly ambiguous on this question of strategic ambiguity, maybe strategically so. Uh, it, It claims to have not reached agreement on that question, but it seems to me that the report itself, taken without the dissents that were published with it, does lean very much toward what Richard Haas endorses, sort of an end to strategic ambiguity. And and I, I, I think this may be the most controversial section, this box that's titled Wither Strategic Ambiguity. And it says the following, let me just quote this. And this is, you know, Maggie has brought this up already. The task force also assessed that given President Biden's comments on four occasions that the United States would defend Taiwan, his successors should not attempt to walk back these comments and should instead use them as the new baseline for U.S. declaratory policy. That's in there. That's part of the report. Uh, that must have been a controversial assertion. Well, I think partly that was a, I mean, that was a late addition to the report. Huh. Uh, and I think it, prompt, it prompted some dissenting views because uh, we were inconclusive in our discussion of that issue. Uh, I would note that, you know, David Sachs, who was the drafter of the director of the, of the task force and the director of the report, was the co-author which with, with Richard Haas of Richard's article a couple of years ago, uh, advocating strategic clarity. Right. So, I mean, that was this perspective he was going to come from. And then there were other members of the task force to believe that. I think there was an imprecision there uh, on, on the inclusion of that statement as reflecting the views of the task force. Uh, as Maggie and I, and I think perhaps one or two others, made explicit in our dissents. Yeah, Maggie, you, you certainly did. You, you called this out in your dissent. Uh, is there any way in which this can be interpreted as less than the task force essentially calling for an end to the very essence of strategic ambiguity? That is, we will defend Taiwan if, if Taiwan is attacked. No conditions applied to it. 
I think, you know, as it says, the, the task force did not come out on that to that level. And I and I agree, you know, with with Paul that this was something which obviously, you know, several of us it it <laughs> made our ears go up and, and and was part not the only reason that we decided several of us i think to add our additional views slash dissent um but you know one thing that i point out too is that you know before that sentence that you quoted that we also say that the task force concluded that the you know, more pressing issue is for the united states to credibly demonstrate to the prc that it has the military capacity and the will to come to taiwan's defense and I think that that right. had a consensus that, you know, we, we need to show that you know, we're serious, right? But again, this comes back to the alongside showing that military might, that where is the political side, where is the credible reassurance on what the policy is, um, and how clear is that, how, you know, how loud is it? And and there is debate about sort of, you know, well, you know, it's saying that isn't going to matter. Or, you know, it's why why does the U.S. have to keep saying what the one China policy is to the Chinese side? But I I think that there is there is good reason to say you know where we are as a country in our policy, especially because Biden has been um, not as disciplined as certainly I would have hoped in his comments on the issue. I think there was an effort to finesse the language, which frankly was not entirely successful. The, the final reference to using President Biden's statements as a new baseline for right. uh, uh, established U.S. policy. I mean, in one sense, that's kind of technically correct because he's said it now four times. Uh, I mean, it's kind of the it's the depart- point of departure for a lot of analysis. Uh, but I mean, the language does stop short or at least attempts to uh, to translating that into advocacy of strategic clarity, which we did not collectively uh, agree to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, Paul, let me me ask you this. As I read the report, deterrence is is very much the theme of it, right? And it's very much front and center throughout the report. Uh, But I I didn't sense that much consideration was given to Chinese calculations of deterrence. After all, what they are trying to do is to deter Taiwan from declaring de jure independence, deter the United States from intervening militarily. I mean, they flicked at it. But it it, does, it seems to be sort of an afterthought, and it, it wasn't really centered in the thinking of, of how, how Beijing sees this. Is there enough attention being paid to how, maybe if, if we could imagine a Beijing counterpart to this task force, a group, you know, uh, a small leading group or some, some group, uh, foreign policy think tank, how are they thinking about deterrence? And are we thinking about how they're thinking about deterrence? That's an excellent question. I mean, I think you're right uh, that that is not direct or is addressed at great length in the report. And it wasn't really a central part of the deliberations or a key part of the deliberations of the task force. I think actually you're highlighting one of the concerns I had. And Maggie mentioned earlier this overemphasis, as we saw it, on, on deterrence, uh, on the need for U.S. deterrence. And, I, and there's no disagreement that our military deterrent could benefit from being enhanced and I think we also agree with the recommendations that the, uh, that the report makes about the efforts we need to do to enhance, uh, to encourage the Taiwanese side of the equation to enhance its deterrence. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But we didn't focus that much on how the Chinese perceived it. And my concern was that in the political sections of the report, and even earlier than that, I mean, rather than address the Chinese calculus of deterrence, I thought there was an overemphasis on the assumption that what is happening in terms of the escalation of tensions 
is not a product of Chinese calculus of deterrence. Uh, there was, I, I thought, an inordinate weight that assigned to that the source of tensions across the strait is essentially the, the Chinese determination that the status quo is no longer uh, acceptable and that China has become more aggressive and more assertive, assertive uh, for systemic reasons, for CCP legitimacy reasons, uh, and for Xi Jinping personal uh, interest and legacy reasons. And this is one of the things I registered in my dissent, because I thought that the, the Chinese perspective uh, was, in a sense, exaggerated and overstated. Because you asked the question about how the Chinese calculates deterrence. I think that is a key question, because what I think the, or the, or the report gives insufficient attention to is the extent to which Chinese calculations, Chinese behavior, in fact, across the strait, is a response to or a reaction to activities or policies or statements in, from both Taipei and Washington. Precisely. This is not just, uh, and, and you know, there's acknowledgement in the report of this, but I think it doesn't it isn't discussed in sufficient detail. Uh, no, I'm, I'm. I think you're you're, you're absolutely right. Uh, I think maybe to the task force credit, it does recognize to some extent that maybe overemphasizing deterrence could actually provoke uh, the conflict that that deterrence is intended to avoid. But this is just sort of said and, and, and allowed to sit there without really, you know, delving into into how that would work, how that might play out, or whether it, it is in fact already causing, you know, Chinese behavior to change. Right. There is a recognition of the action reaction dynamic that, you know, we are concerned about where that right. you know, ratcheting up. And, you know, and so with this, you know, you know, too, it's 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 interesting because, you know, one thing about being in, in Taiwan right now is we're seeing a lot of people come through Taiwan and starting to see two more people, you know, being able to go to China itself. And you had, of course, Nason Mabubi on uh, recently to talk about his trip to China. And so one thing that struck me um, throughout this report is just the Rumsfeldian known unknowns. What do we know? And how you know the right. the lack of contact uh, among sort of academics, think tankers, you know, as well as government people means that we just have less less information to go on. I was in Tokyo before coming to uh, Taipei and had a chance to meet with some international relations scholars from China, and to be back in a room talking with them and having the tea breaks, it was just invaluable. And so part of my feeling throughout this process was a sense of that loss of contact and really just trying to not read too much into the published speeches that we do have and taking a few key sentences in Taiwan and extrapolating, well, then this must be Xi Jinping's thinking. So really trying to be somewhat humble about how how limited we are. In our- That's right. Let me go back, Paul, to um, you, you know, your dissenting opinion focuses on on what I think is a very central issue, not just in this report, but in, in general on how the American media and policy elites seem on balance to view the causes of, this, of, of, of this state of affairs. I am constantly seeing this assertion that, like you know, you said, this is China primarily, that this is for the various reasons that you cited, whether it's Xi's personality or for sort of structural changes or, or uh, what have you, that China has been the, the principal agent of, of, of change to the so-called st- status quo when it comes to Taiwan. I, I think the report very much reflects that same general belief. Um, I don't think I'm exaggerating when I say that it assigns the preponderance of blame to China. And in your, uh, your dissent, which I have to say is quite brave in this current environment, <laughs> um, you try to 
you know, to exercise that strategic empathy and look critically at how our behavior, this is a theme we've been trying to draw out here, uh, might at least be perceived by China, even legitimately perceived by China as threatening the status quo. So I'm going to ask you to do this. I know this is risking your neck and your career, but you're retired, so it's okay. Where have we sliced the salami? What has the United States done to move the status quo? And then maybe we can also talk about what Taiwan has done to move the status quo. I think we can, we should, I mean, uh, just in, in fairness, also talk about how China has moved the status quo. But this is, you know, already the, the kind of conventional wisdom and everyone is already full of ideas of how China has done so. But so I think it's more important to highlight the first two. First, the United States, Paul. Well, that, that's a loaded question. Not leading, though. <laughs> I mean, the, no, my first thought was, I mean, you, you started in terms of uh, the attribution of responsibility for the cross-strait tensions being primarily Beijing. I would just reinforce maybe the point I made earlier, and I think uh, Maggie referred to this. Uh, it goes beyond that to a certain extent and attributes it in particular to Xi Jinping. There, mm, there's a statement mm-hmm. in the report that the, I mean, you mentioned earlier that the risk of conflict will increase over time for various reasons, but one of the central drivers that this is attributed to is uh, this judgment that Xi Jinping, as, as his tenure proceeds, his source of legitimacy from sh- will shift from from economic prosperity to promoting nationalism. Uh, and in fact, Patty Kim and her dissent questions this judgment for the same reason that, right. that I do, and I think Maggie does as well. Again, it, it's the idea that Beijing is responsible, and, and Xi Jinping in particular. And I just, you know, and to get to the core of your question, I think that's a misattribution of, of one of the core drivers here. And what I say in my dissent is that we have we have to pay attention to the extent to which she, whatever his calculations or his personal ambitions, is to some extent responding to actions by Taipei and Washington. Uh, and this is where I emphasize the point, and this gets to your question about salami slicing, that uh, we recommend in the report that Washington needs to reaffirm its one China policy. My concern is that this does not give it sufficient attention to the extent to which that one China policy has been eroding considerably in terms of both substance and credibility. And you ask, what do I mean by that in terms of the specific salami-slicing measures? The strengthening of U.S.-Taiwan relations incrementally over the last 20 years, and, 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 and and the report explicitly acknowledges that these are sources of tension. The fact that the Trump administration largely eliminated any constraints on diplomatic interaction with Taiwan leaders, certainly in Washington, and the Biden administration has persisted as, as has, has retained that uh, that loosening of tensions. I think the other is is reflected in another part of the report. We're slicing the salami and, in a sense, getting closer toward arguably. And this is I don't know if I say this explicitly in the dissent, but it's hard. It's harder to make the case that our policy is not drifting toward a one China one Taiwan policy. Mm-hmm. And I think this is most evident in we did have discussion of this in the task force. Uh, the report cites, uh, in the security section, it cites, and this I think is a central part of the salami slicing, again, to reinforce that I'm addressing your question, the testimony that uh, Assistant Secretary of Defense Eli Ratner made in December 21. That's uh, right. I was going to treat that as a separate issue entirely, but but we can start that in, in, into that now. But, but I, I think it fits into this category of uh, Chinese perceptions of U.S. salami slicing. Uh, and, and, and the report largely endorses the notion in fact, almost explicitly, that Taiwan is a strategic node, is a critical critical strategic asset. And I think this is the heel of the salami from Jay Beijing's perspective. <laughs> uh, because this is this is not 
this is a new historical formulation that I think is arguably inconsistent, you know, with the affirmation that the report makes that we need to provide assurances to Beijing that we're not pursuing permanent separation of Taiwan from the mainland. But to view and present and portray and advocate Taiwan as a critical strategic node that cannot be allowed to fall under Chinese hostile hands, by and large, arguably makes the case for advocating permanent separation. Uh, yeah. And, and that's a large cut of salami. And, and that's why, you know, my point, and as I said in the dissent, is that, I mean, that's one of the reasons why we need to be much more persuasive in our affirmation that our Taiwan-China policy has not changed because when Beijing says that, well, I, I'm not going to advocate the Chinese rhetorical perspective on this, but I mean, it, it's, it's less persuasive to issue reassurances. And in fact, the last point I'll make, Maggie and I were among others who raised this same point that the, the emphasis on deterrence in the report is not sufficiently balanced by the emphasis on reassurance. Right. And this is where reassurances are vitally important. The, the report acknowledges the need to do this, but it doesn't go into sufficient detail on what the form and substance and nature of those assurances need to be. And I think they have to involve a more credible explanation of our one-China policy to, to make it consistent with what it historically has been. Maggie, are you in agreement with with Paul? Uh, are you also alarmed at this kind of uh, formulation of Taiwan as a strategic asset, a critical node, you know that that needed to be denied to China? Uh, are, was that something that also stuck out for you? Yes. Yeah, so taking a step back, you know, in the part of the report that describes what is the one China policy, which of course itself is complicated because there is no single document headline, you know, one China policy. You know, one of the the bullet points that we make clear is that, you know, part of that policy is that the US does not take a position on what any resolution of cross-strait differences should look like, instead right. prioritizing process, in particular that any outcome needs to be arrived at peacefully. And as added during the Clinton administration with the ascent of the Taiwanese people. And for me, that's that's critical. And partially, again, this is, you know, the, you let a human rights person onto a, a fairly military focused <laughs> task force. But, you know, this comes down to me. This is that's respecting self-determination. Right. It is not the U.S.'s job to tell the you know 23 million people surrounding me on, on Taiwan um, what their future should look like. But it is fair to say whatever process, you know, the U.S. supports that it be done peacefully and in, in a democratic manner. And, and so for me, that that is really, really important. And I say that again, as the election season is heating up here, which could turn out with having it's a three-way race right now, and who knows what Terry Goh's going to do and maybe make it a four-way and throw in James Soong, we could have a five-way race. But, you know, that this is their choice, not my choice. And so to throw in this, you know, well, because Taiwan is strategically important, which is a descriptive matter. Yeah. I mean, if if Beijing could make it so they launch submarines from the east side of Taiwan, that that changes what happens in the Indo-Pacific and it changes our ability as the United States to um, to feel confident in, in even, you know, how much we can help out, you know, maybe perhaps even allies like Japan. So I think it's a descriptive matter. The U.S. has tremendous interests in Taiwan militarily. But as a policy matter, uh, what really needs to be made loud and clear and highlighted and neon lights is this point about the U.S. 
does not, and nor do I think should it, take a position on the ultimate status of Taiwan, what that end right. game should be. This point was made really, really clearly in the Doug Paul and Danny Russell uh, dissent. I think that was sort of the centerpiece of theirs. I, I think it's maybe important to ID them both quickly. Doug Paul was a foreign, we've mentioned him before, a foreign service officer who was, was at policy planning at state. He had a long career as a senior analyst for the CIA. He was at AIT, importantly, um, was an NSC staffer during Reagan and George H.W. Bush. Um, Danny Russell, who I had the great pleasure of interviewing for this show, was a career foreign service officer who served as the assistant secretary of state for East Asia and the Pacific under President Obama, uh, and he's now the VP of International Security and Diplomacy at the Asia Society Policy Institute. Neither of these guys is a, a panda hugger. They're not kumbaya types. Um, they raise really important objections to this piece of the, the task force findings and on those same grounds that Maggie, you were talking about, because the U.S. has to make clear that it is prepared to accept unification on terms that you know the U.S. has long agreed to it would accept that is peacefully and with the assent of both Taiwan and, and, and China. And if we treat Taiwan as a strategic asset, that forecloses the possibility that we would accept you know a, 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 any even a peaceful unification. Is that correct? Yeah, I think that was the point that we were making. And in fact, Paul. that would reinforce that. Ryan Haas at the Brookings yeah, Institution yeah. just published uh, an article which reinforces this point as well. The risks to Taiwan uh, exactly. of treating it and talking about it as a, as a strategic asset. Yeah, that was a great piece. It's in it's in the Taiwan Times, right? Is that right? Taipei Times, Taipei I think. Times. But you can find it there or on the Brookings website. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, a, it's a very good, very, very short op-ed, but it makes exactly that same point. So Doug and, and, and Danny, Doug Paul and, and Danny Russell argue that this simply contradicts the long, long-standing you know, assertion that any future arrangement is up to the people of China and Taiwan to decide. And I just w- I want to add here, though, you know, in some ways, you know, it, just to make clear that the people of Taiwan have made very clear that it's not in the realm of possibility in the near right. or medium at least term that there would be their assent to join with the PRC under a single entity right and and for this you know, we've already mentioned early on Shelley Rigger but she's done work with Lev Nachman who is a political scientist you know based in Taiwan that uh, goes beyond the the standard polling that asks about identity which itself is fascinating to see the rise in Taiwanese identity over time with now pushing 70% of the the people of Taiwan say, I am Taiwanese right. and I'm not Taiwanese and Chinese. I am Taiwanese. But but Lev and Shelly and, and their co-authors dig deeper to try to figure out, well, what are the views towards China? And and what they tease out is more the sense that a lot of people, you know, in, in Taiwan feel great affinity for Chinese culture. And of course there's Taiwan is a fairly multicultural place, including indigenous peoples and, you know, but it's the political system, which people here are adamantly crystal clear sure. they do not want to be a part of. And and I will say, you know, looking back to being here in 2020 for that presidential election, the deterioration, if not obliteration of civil and political rights in Hong Kong um, really um, hit hard and was hugely helpful in Tsai Ing-wen's re-election. Um, that doesn't feel quite so present in sort of day-to-day conversation right now, um, but um, you know, there is just there is no way that assent would be there anytime soon to join Beijing. 
I mean, as completely unlikely as, as such an eventuality might be, it's still hard for me to imagine an American politician of either party being able to stand up in front of an audience and say, I would support peaceful unification between China and Taiwan. Uh, I mean, even that seems just, just terribly impalatable right now. Uh, oh, I agree. And that would be, you know, talk about a soundbite for someone to use in a campaign against, um, ad against that person. Right, right. Um, so, but I don't think that needs to be said necessarily. I, I just would, I would even be happy if there was clear statements about, again, this right of self-determination, which is, that is what is in the one China policy and what's in the international covenant and civil and political rights, which the U.S. is a member of. And that we're not making decisions for the people of Taiwan. Um, and that is short of saying, and we're okay with one of those decisions being joining together. But, you know, of course, the U.S. politicians, you know, not just executive branch, but in Congress are constrained by domestic political realities. Uh, and our Chinese counterparts know that. So, uh, you know, I think that there's, you know, some limits about what can be asked for. You're not going to get a unicorn with, you know, rainbow with a rainbow <laughs> mane. One of the interesting things about that is that the self-determination clause, if you want to call it that, is a relatively new inclusion in our one China policy. Because when our one China policy was forged back in the 1970s, Taiwan was neither a democracy nor was that part of the equation that either Beijing or Washington was looking right. at. I mean, and, and that is what is, uh, you know, the uh, and the report, I think, accurately and, and correctly uh, outlines that this is one of the things that's that's altered the equation over the last 40 years. It's created some of the dilemmas we're confronting now. That's right. And I first came to Taiwan um, with Jerry Cohen, who, happy birthday, Jerry, just turned 93 um, earlier this month. Mm -hmm. um, and what we were studying were vestiges of martial law in the criminal justice system and administrative law system. And and you, you know, in the early 2000s, you still felt that. I mean, it was only 1996 that there was the first direct presidential election. So this is a young democracy. And uh, and and that bears, you know, reminding because we it, it, it's amazing that in a quarter century, so much has changed. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Hey, so I have one more question and I, I want to ask Paul, a while back, shortly after Nancy Pelosi's visit, um, during another one of those sort of maelstroms around Taiwan, uh, John Culver, who you know very well, published a piece for the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace in which he laid out what it was that we would see, what it is that we would see were China in fact preparing some kind of a military action against Taiwan. Uh, I wonder whether either of you have seen any, uh, I mean, I'm, I, I assume that you both read this. It was a really influential piece. Whether you've seen anything that he, he enumerated transpire, is there any reason by his measure to fear that we've moved closer? I don't think so. I mean, I certainly would defer to John, uh, but I, I think he would argue that, uh, you know, he had a very specific list of indicators as the kind of operational things and diplomatic things and all kinds of other preparations that Beijing would be launching if they were, you know, if, if, if they had decided to send a balloon up. Well, he did send a balloon up, didn't they? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. And we brought it down. Right. Uh, yeah. And, it, in, and one of those conditions wasn't the three-week disappearance of the foreign minister? No. Well, we might find out some clarity on that in the next day or two. Uh, but, I mean, the, the yeah, reason I think we haven't seen those this. things is because I still believe, and I think logic and history and the evidence still supports the idea that the Chinese are not eager or planning 
to use force against the island. Now, you know, the, the counter evidence that's cited is China's, you know, uh, you know, exponential and per- persistent military buildup, which have been described by others as simply war preparations. Well, you know, a military buildup, yeah, you can characterize that as war rep- reparations. That's what militaries do. You can make the counter observation that when the Pentagon says that China is our pacing challenge, it's the rationale for our comparable war preparations. We're not preparing for war. We're preparing contingency plans to be capable and ready for war. And that's what the Chinese are doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, if, if they had decided that they were going to actually use force, I think we would start to see some of the indicators that John outlined, and we haven't seen them. I wonder, though, if there aren't sort of steps short of war that we haven't maybe thought through and thought of, of, of contingencies for. For example, what would happen if they decided to put a blockade around just Jinmen, just Kimoi, and if they decided to demilitarize Kimoi, to insist on its demilitarization, what would we be able to do? I, I wonder what, what, you know, we, would we think through these sorts of, of contingencies? I, I mean, again, I'm, I'm absolutely ignorant of, of American military preparations for these sorts of things and military calculus, but I wonder, you know, whether somebody with your long experience in intelligence knows, might might have some inkling about that. Well, I'm largely ignorant of operational military plans, especially you know, in recent years. Uh, I, I would have to defer to operational experts like John Culver and others as to as to what specific capabilities we would have to counter that. But I mean, it would obviously, I think, well, I, I think the diplomatic impact would be as important. Uh, as the military operational impact of that. I mean, it would sure, be immediately sure, perceived sure. as the Chinese having decided to use force uh, and go for the gold in terms of uh, affecting reunification with, Ch- with with Taiwan. I'm not sure that it would necessarily reflect that. It might be a test of our capabilities or Taiwan's capabilities. Uh, uh, you know, my guess is that there are options that we could we could uh, pull off the shelf uh well, I, I guess, I guess, yeah, I guess all I can say is that I, you know, I, I, I'm just assuming that if our pacing challenge includes contingencies with regard to Taiwan, that those kinds of scenarios are among the planning that uh, Indo-PACOM is involved in, and, and again, in conjunction with our allies yeah. who might participate in some way in, in responding to that. I mean, just, I, I only say this because it, it struck me reading the report that it seemed to think of things in, in kind of a binary that it's either war or not war, right? Uh, an invasion or not an invasion. And so I'd say here on the ground in Taiwan that there is a real debate about, you know, first of all, how immediate, how, what are the possibilities for different kinds of more, uh, more direct action uh, by Beijing? Of course, you know, we've seen over recent years, a, a huge increase in the number of flights in the vicinity of Taiwan. There's no doubt there's been an escalation and that kind of, you know, I'm not touching you um, behavior, right. as I think of kids in the backseat of the car. But, um, and there's a real debate about how to be prepared, you know, because Taiwan has huge vulnerabilities. And we, some of this is in the report, but, you know, that Taiwan imports nearly 100% of its energy. So the question about is nuclear energy going to come back, you know, something that the KMT is raising. Uh, Taiwan has increased its conscription to a year uh, for men. Uh, KMT has also made some noises that you know, about whether they agree with that. And there, there are good questions about quantity versus quality 
Uh, one thing we flag in the report, which I'm very interested in, is whether there should be more national service that requires female participation. There's no constitutional barrier to that in, in Taiwan, and that's part of the discussion. So here, too, there's a lot of conversations about what kind of more coercive or even kinetic uh, warfare um, uh, scenarios could play out. And um, just very anecdotally, the people I interact with, they're, they're, they really vary in how much they sort of walk around with a sense of foreboding or this is, you know, far distant future, if anything. Actually, I think on the point you raised, that's incredibly important because, I mean, John Culver and others I know have been in the forefront of making this argument that, you know, the conventional wisdom is that if the Chinese decide to use force, there's going to be, you know, it's going to be D-Day. It's the amphibious assault, what uh, one of my colleagues used to call the million man swim across the strait. <laughs> that is probably among the least likely scenarios. Uh, China has a wide range of non-kinetic coercive options uh, that could be much more effective in achieving its goals, and in fact has been somewhat effective already in undermining, as Maggie has said, the confidence of uh, of folks on the on the Taiwan side. So I think yeah, we, that's why I, I found it so curious that that there wasn't so much discussion devoted to those other coercive non-kinetic uh, options available to Beijing and and what our contingencies might be. In any case, you can only do so much in a hundred-page report. But, I was uh, going to say. I mean, you, you know, we we were constrained because we were not. We didn't have the option of making it encyclopedic. I think. Right, right, right. But uh, kudos to you both for offering such, you know, I think uh, spirited dissents. I think they were they were excellent, and uh, those were, uh, you know, I think a saving grace in many ways of the report. I would I would add Patty Kim's, which was also excellent, and and. Of course, uh, Danny Russell's and Doug Paul's. Very, very good. Um, let's move on now. And oh, first, thank you very much for your time. And and uh, move on to recommendations. Um, first, a very quick reminder that the Seneca podcast is powered by The China Project. And the best thing that you can do to support the work that we do with this podcast and with the others in our network is to become an Access subscriber. Uh, for a very reasonable annual fee, you get access to our daily newsletter which is just great, just a really, really good one, super readable, really nicely put together, uh, visually very nice. And uh, lots of, we're always experimenting with new products, so you'll be the first to, to get to try them. Um, yeah, so on to recommendations. Uh, Maggie, why don't you start us off? What do you have for us? Well, I wish that I could send you all um, mangoes because Ooh. it has been, I mean, that especially Iwen, the Irwin mangoes. Oh. And I mean, they're always fantastic this time of year, but I've been told by several people that they're particularly sweet this year because of very climactic reasons. Um, so that, that's a recommendation, <laughs> but get them if you can. Um, but one, that, one thing, uh, my recommendation that is available to everyone everywhere is I've been listening to a podcast called Fever by John Sudworth, who was the BBC reporter in China for about a decade. And he actually um, ended up uh, fleeing here with his family in the spring of 2021. My family was in Taiwan and they ended up coming over and it was you know, literally followed to the airport by plainclothes police because he was under so much pressure first for his reporting, his excellent reporting about Xinjiang and, and then looking into COVID. Uh, but now he's done this podcast and it's a multi-part podcast looking at trying to find out the origins of COVID. And there was so much noise, lab leak and this, and I've really appreciated listening to John try to make accessible to a non-scientific audience 
um, these very complicated debates. So I, I would recommend that. Okay. All right. I'll check it out. Although I'm, I'm very, very close to being unable to read another damn thing about code origins. But hey, uh, it, it is, and in partially because it is just so complicated, it just breaks your brain. Uh, but excellent recommendation. Thanks. All right, Paul, what do you have for us? Well, I don't know if I can outdo fresh mangoes. That's a tough one. <laughs> uh, but I'll give you, I'll, I'll cheat as usual and give you two quickies. One is uh, I'm going to strongly recommend the movie Oppenheimer. Yeah. Uh, not not because I want to endorse the politics that has been attributed to, to it, but because I'm a historian. And it's, a, it's an excellent history lesson for, I think, the majority of Americans who probably aren't that familiar with this story, the details of it. It's a very powerful cinematic experience and very thought-provoking. I mean, you know, it's not perfect. There's a couple little things that grate me the wrong way, but I think it's a it's an extraordinary movie and it's a must-see because uh, I think we need to understand this episode, the magnitude of it in our history uh, and how it still has relevance today. The second thing I'll recommend since... Wait, Paul, did you do a double feature Barbenheimer? That's the question. <laughs> I did not do Barbenheimer. Uh, I, I was not... I, at this stage, I'm not particularly interested in the Barbie version, the Barbie <laughs> saga, I should say. Oh, are you are you wearing your Barbie outfit there? I mean, you're wearing hot pink right now. I mean, it's I know I'm I'm in the spirit, and I've got my, my you know even so my hat. <laughs> oh, God. No, I didn't do the full Barbie Heimer. You know, I am going to see it. I'm going to see it. I've already determined that. You know, I just because it's part of of sort of the, the cultural conversation now, and I feel like I'd be. Speaking from ignorance, if I didn't see it, so I will. But Oppenheimer, yeah, I, I, I thought it was it was very much worth seeing. I, I took my history nerd daughter, and uh, she we just talked about it for an hour and a half afterward. It was great. Yeah. The, the second thing I was going to say is, as a, a Kenan doppelganger, I strongly recommend uh, the new biography of Kenan by Frank Castigliola. Mm. Uh, it just came out earlier this year. Uh, I actually found it in some ways more interesting than what supposedly, or well, is still, I guess, considered the definitive canon biography by John Lewis Gaddis. Um, because I think I think Casoliola is gets more into the personality, uh, sometimes a little uh, more than I'm comfortable with. He even dabbles with some psychoanalysis a little bit around the edges. But I think it's it's an excellent book for two reasons. I mean, well, just the, you know the topic, but. Uh, I think it's it, it gives you a more human uh, comprehension of Kenan, uh, and I think it, it also uh, does a really good job of drawing out the immediate uh, contemporary relevance of some of his ideas uh, about the need for mutual understanding between East and West. And I think uh, he's not explicit on on the China side of the equation, but I think it very much applies there. Looking at it right now, yeah, I'm I'm going to buy this. This looks excellent. Fantastic. Thank you. Uh, another excellent book recommendation. I've been doing a lot of your book recommendations and really enjoying them. All right. So mine is going to be a book recommendation as well. Um, and it's, you know, in anticipation of an upcoming interview on this podcast. Uh, it's really good, though. And it's not out yet. It's not going to be out until late August, I believe. But get your hands on a review copy if you're able. Um, and if not, you know, let this just be an appetite whetting for you. Uh, it's Yasheng Huang's book. The Rise and Fall of the East, How Exams, Autocracy, Stability, and Technology Brought China's Success and Why They Might Lead to Its Decline. But um, it's, it's a fantastic book. You know, it's one of these books that dares to be very, uh, to, to take on a gigantic historical sweep, a big topic, and to make, you know, sort of bold assertions and to, to really kind of draw 
links from China's imperial past to the present um, in a way that that I mean it, it's 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 not. You know, this is Yashan Huang after all we're talking about. So they're they're very they're well thought through. They're they're very subtle and and smart. And uh, it happens to also you know be in an area that I've kind of I've I've worked through myself when working on you know, the rise of, of of technocracy in China and looking at its relationship to the kuju to the examination system in Imperial China. So uh, I I just I'm I'm pretty blown away by this book. Uh, it's it's really really good. The rise of the um, the rise and fall of the East by Yashan Huang. So yeah, check that out. And um, once again, thank you to both of you for 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 taking the time to talk with me about. Uh, and uh, please make sure to check out the the CFR report. Uh, once again, the title of the report is is U.S. China U.S. Taiwan relations in a new era: responding to a more assertive China. And uh, it, it, you'll you'll see it's quite the who's who of people in the China watching space who participated in it. Uh, so thanks thanks once again to both of you. Thank you very much. Thanks, guys. Sir. Thanks, Paul. The Seneca Podcast is powered by the China Project and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced and edited by me, Kaiser Guo. We would be delighted if you would drop us an email at Seneca at thechinaproject.com or just give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts as this really does help people discover the show. Meanwhile, follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at the China Proj. And be sure to check out all of the shows in the Seneca Network. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care.